You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. We're in Luke 9. This week, talking about the Transfiguration. This week, we have with us Pastor Drew Tarwater. How you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Good to be with you, as always. Hey, Pastor Drew, I don't, you know what I do. I don't Google stuff. I dare and stuff. Pastor Woo! Darren Enns, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Happy almost Christmas. Right? And I'm Rob Lazzi. And just to preview something, if you're listening to this podcast, coming up next in a few days, you will hear our Christmas special episode podcast with Dr. Matt Jones about Christmas questions, what really happened, what's cultural versus biblical, and all things Christmas. His doctorate is in the book of Matthew, so it'll be fun to talk to him. So, but with that, Drew, can you recap the sermon last week with uh, Transfiguration? Hey, and real quick, Rob, did you say you don't droogle or you don't Google? I don't, I should, yeah, I should say I don't droogle. <laughs> that was a bad one, Drew. Uh, that was so bad. I know. Hey, that's usually my job, Drew. That's hey, to can tell you, the can, bad jokes. Can you guys cut that out before nope. this goes live? Nope. I will not. <laughs> Unacceptable. Well, guys, we were in uh, Luke chapter 9, which is really cool. This story of the transfiguration of Jesus happens in all three of the uh, synoptic gospels. So Matthew 17 and Mark 9. And so you can go read all of them. And uh, the, some of the details about Jesus' looks are really cool. You know, um, Matthew says that his clothes are so white, like no, ble- no one could ever bleach them. Uh, that's in Mark. And Matthew says his face shines like the sun. So it's really cool, but you have this very strange encounter on this on this mountain where Jesus takes just his core three that he's really investing in, Peter, James, and James' brother John, to the top of the mountain. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he, he, he begins to shine. Um, his face shines like the sun. His clothes are bright white. The disciples all of a sudden are not sure what's going on. And then in an instant... They're no longer alone on the mountain. Now you've got eyes, uh, you've got Elijah, and you've got Moses on the mountain with Jesus, and Peter and James and John are, are are just afraid and they're really freaked out. And so Peter says, "Well, Jesus, let us build these little shelters. Let me put these tents up so you guys can rest and we can worship you." And and then all of a sudden, God speaks from heaven, "This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him." And then you know. Anytime God speaks, of course, you're going you're gonna to kind of be really frightened. And so James, Peter, and John all like fall to the ground when they hear God speak. And then um, in an instant, Jesus, it's just Jesus there. And Jesus puts his hand on their shoulders and is like, hey, stand up, guys. It's me. Don't be afraid. And so they get this glimpse, this really interesting glimpse of who Jesus is that the other disciples didn't get. And I don't know about for you guys, but growing up, I always thought this was a really cool story, but I just never understood it and really didn't think I could wrap, you know, like, what is God really teaching us here? But as we unpacked it on Sunday, I think there's a lot of really cool truths. Uh, but it's also a pretty confusing story, too. Like, 
you know, this encounter, how come only these three and why did it happen this way? So this is going to be fun to unpack it a bit. No, absolutely. So, because one of the questions to start unpacking it is, I'll send it out to Darren. Why did Jesus glow? Like, what was the deal with, you know, turning white and, well, I'll leave it there because, like, I don't even get it. Yeah, I think Drew said some interesting things about uh, some Old Testament references. Like, he referenced Daniel and that there's this Ancient of Days person in one of his visions who has white hair. And, and stuff like that. Also, I think significant is that there is another story in the Old Testament where someone was, was glowing or shining, and that was Moses. But it was after Moses was, uh, you know, hidden in the cleft of the rock, as the hymn goes, and, uh, and God's glory passes by. He sees the back of him. And after that, Moses comes down from the mountain, and he, his face is shining in a way that the other Israelites couldn't look at him. So he had to wear a little veil over his face to interact with people. But when he went into interact with God in the tabernacle, he was able to take that veil off because he could he could interact with God face to face. It's a really interesting thing where Moses, and, and uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, I think, um, where like the, the ancient Israelites could not comprehend what was happening to Moses, and that's why they couldn't look upon his face. Whereas Moses was being transformed into the image of God. Um, that, that's what this shining was, was supposed to do. And um, Jesus is the image of God. And here he's, he's revealed in a way that, that we can see that he, 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 like humans are created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, but Jesus is the image of God. He's not created in the image of God. He is the image of God. And we then are, are being transformed, you know, as, as Christian believers into the image of Jesus also, who is the image of God. So there's some connections there, I think, w- with that, that shining as well. Are there any uh, words in translation, like when they talk about how Jesus glowed, they kind of give us a better clarification or understanding of what he actually looked like? Because sometimes like they use, you know, uh, the easy one is love's got three different words for it, or we have one. Mm-hmm. Is there something with like talking about how Jesus, how he glowed, that would give us a better idea of representation of what he may have looked like to the disciples? Yeah, so the Greek word behind that is doxa, uh, which is translated in, into English as glory. And um, the Hebrew word, that same Hebrew word, um, is kavod, which Drew talked about. Um, and, and, and Drew rightly mentioned that the Hebrew, kavod, has this sense of, of weight or heaviness. Um, and I, I describe it to people this way. If you think of those old school scales, it's like a balance where oh. if, if you have grams, like the little things. Like, like the justice grams, scales. Yeah, justice scales. You, you put your, your weight on one side and then you put whatever you're measuring on the other. So like you you need to measure your flour. You put you need 10 grams of flour. So you put your 10 gram weight on one and then you put flour on the other one until it it goes down. Um imagine you put God on one side of those scales. There is no possible weight that you could put on the other side to balance it out. God is the ultimate heavy thing in the universe, but that means that he is he's worthy. So when you think about those scales in the marketplace, they would have their little, they would have their weights and measures to make sure that your coins were, um, that made sure that your coins were the equal weight. Because what you could do with your ancient coins is you could shave a little bit off, and eventually over time you could mint another coin. Uh, and so people had to oh. make sure, <laughs> people had to make sure that Sneaky. your coins, yeah, that that you were giving them were the right amount of weight of gold, of silver, of bronze, whatever. 
Um, and so you, that's how, the, how they made sure that the right currency was being exchanged. But God cannot be weighed out in that way. And so there's no amount of gold, no amount of anything that could equal what God is worth. He, he is the ultimate, um, you know, weighty thing in the universe. And so as we head towards the New Testament, there is actually an intermediate word because um, most people, when you think of glory, think of this kind of shining, right? Glory is some kind of radiant light, beauty, whatever kind of thing. But the Hebrew word kavod, most of the time does not refer to that. It does say that um, God's glory came into the, the, um, the tabernacle, and that says glory. And there was something about God's presence being radiant in that moment. Like, it was, it was fire, but it's not necessarily this, like, glowing, shining type of glory that we usually think of. The Hebrews in the intermediate period heading into the New Testament, um, they used a different word in some of the... Second Temple Judaism literature, uh, some of the apocryphal stuff, uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud and all that kind of stuff, it, it's called Shekinah, which if you're a, an older Christian, you may know that because it used to be used a lot more. Um, Shekinah glory is this shining radiance that we're talking about here. But the, the Greek doxa, I think, has both senses behind it. And the, the lexicon that, uh, that I use um, talks a bit more actually about the shining and, and the, the, the radiance but we have to be careful about that. And th- there's a work that I, uh, I had to do a book review on for one of my classes in Romans that, that mentioned that doxa is a little less light shining radiance than we think of it. So most of the time when you read glory, try to think worth, honor, significance, weight, instead of shining type of glory. Even though Jesus here was revealed in glory and he was shining. So, but, but also think like God is showing exactly who he is here. No, it's interesting to think about it. And so, but Drew, in the Old Testament, you could, you know, people looked at God and like, you know, Moses could just see the back of God and it, or it could be deadly. In the New Testament, the disciples saw this and lived. How come? What's the difference here? Yeah, you do see that, especially in the account of Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses says, you know, God, show me your glory. And as Darren mentioned earlier, you know, God takes Moses up, hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes behind him and allows him to see his shadow. And that's enough glory for Moses to his face to shine. Um, and, and you do see this, this, this kind of current in the old Testament where you can't look upon the face of God and live that, that God is just too holy. He's just too powerful. He's just too big um, that you can't actually see him face to face and, and actually live through that. Um, and so you, you get this impression that, okay, you can't actually see the glory of God in its fullness and, and, and experience that. But yet now you have Jesus on the mountain with these three, and he shows them the, the glory of God. And I love what John says about this in John 1, that he says that Jesus came to show God the Father to us. And so he, he, he shows us his glory to reveal the glory of the Father. And then Peter later in 2 Peter 2 will say that they were eyewitnesses to the glory of Jesus. And so how come Peter, James, and John could see God's glory in Jesus and and live? And so I think there is an element that Jesus, when he stepped out of heaven, he, he left his divine glory in heaven and took on the form of a man. And then in this encounter, it says that Jesus is praying and so he's connecting with God the Father, and, and then the disciples are allowed for a brief moment to see almost this intersection of heaven and earth for Jesus to reveal to them 
who he is, that he's not just the son of God. He is the son of God, absolutely. But I don't know that they understood that level to the extent that, no, he is literally God, a member of the Trinity who existed in eternity past in heaven with God. He is one that contains the glory of God, and they are allowed to see maybe a muted element of that. They're, they're allowed to see a, a level of it, not, not so much that they wouldn't be able to, to, to live, but enough that they could be the eyewitness to see, wow, Jesus isn't just this king, Messiah, savior we're waiting on. He is all of those things, but he is the, literally the embodiment of God himself. This is Jesus, the son of God himself, showing us the radiance of his glory. Um, so the disciples are given this sneak peek of how really heaven and earth unfolding together to reveal that truth about Jesus, that he is bigger and, and weightier than they could have ever imagined. And so why was, did Jesus show this to the disciples? And I believe it was just James, John, and Peter, as you said. And why was it just these three? Like, what was, is there a significance to that? <clears throat> Jesus kind of had like rings of close friends, right? you think about these three are like the inner circle, I guess. And then you've got the 12, and then you've got, I don't know, 72 or 120. There's kind of rings of, of levels of disciples there. So, I mean, this is, this is his, his best buds, his BFFs, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And also, if you look at the book of Acts, now James dies really early. You know, James gets, he loses his life super early. But Peter goes on to be really kind of the face of the church, John goes on after everybody else pretty much loses their life. John goes on to, you know, to be the basically the, the you know the elder in Ephesus. He goes on to to write, you know, more um, more letters in the book of Revelation. And so I think, you know, John had a very special role. So John is allowed to see these things. Peter had a very special role. Peter was allowed to see these things. Um, so I think these are leaders that Jesus is investing in. Uh, and like Darren said, these are his three core best buddies that he was pouring into every day. And so with the next question, it says, um, and we're in Luke 9 and 28, it says about eight days after this. And I think there was a, you said earlier, like it was like another verse that six days. There's some, like, it's not a clear amount of days. Like when this took like, like, what's the significance with the days? You know, critics of the Bible are always looking for little things to, to point doubt and say, oh, it's a contradiction. Uh, so this is one I thought we, we could talk about for a second. So when Luke talks about this, he says, now about eight days after Jesus was talking what it looks like to follow him. So let me back up. So Jesus, after he is at Caesarea Philippi and he asks the disciples, who do the people say I am? And they say, oh, you're a prophet. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And they say, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the, son, you know, the, the Savior. And then he says to them, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then in this statement, he says, if there are, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so in each of the three accounts, it says, after Jesus says that, right, that some of you who are standing here will see the kingdom of God. It says, now about eight days after this thing, Peter, James, and John took with, with Jesus up on the mountain to pray. Matthew and Mark say, and after six days. And so there's not a contradiction here. It's just different ways of saying it, right? So about eight days, what does that mean? Well, seven, eight days, right? That's what Luke says. Matthew and Mark say, well, after six days. Well, 
what does that mean? Well, it's, it's after six, so it could be seven, it could be eight, right? And so it's just a roundabout way of saying, hey, about a week later, you know, after Jesus says this, that some of you are going to see the kingdom of God face to face. He takes him up on the mountain. He reveals himself in God's glory. And that's what he does, that very thing. He reveals the kingdom of God to Peter, James, and John. And so now they can be eyewitnesses of his glory and see that this kingdom of God isn't something we're waiting on to come someday, but it's here now because Jesus brings it. So what was the deal with Moses and Elijah being in there at the transfiguration? Like, is there a significance that Moses and Elijah are there? Yeah, when a lot of times when New Testament writers talk about the law and the prophets, um, Moses is a representative of the law and Elijah is a representative of the prophets. They're just the biggest characters or biggest people th- who, who contribute to those stories. Elijah is just seen as one of the best prophets and Moses, of course, who presumably wrote most, if not all of the Pentateuch, um, all, all of the law. So that's important. Also, uh, something I hadn't considered, which, which Drew talked about, is something unique happened with with them drew what was it? talk more about that yeah so like with moses and you know uh, elijah both of them had these mountaintop experiences with god right you know moses wants to see god on the mountain elijah uh you know moses has this encounter with the burning bush you know elijah has this encounter encounter with god and the prophets of baal where um you know god moses or elijah calls down fire from heaven and it burns up all the wood and the prophets of baal couldn't do it and it had been raining and and so they both had this mountaintop experience, but yet neither of them got to see God face to face on this mountaintop experience. Also, Elijah never died. We see that Elijah gets picked up in a whirlwind of fire. Um, Moses, when he dies, God says, I'm going to bury him myself. So you can see there's some special relationship with Moses and, and Elijah and God. And I think a lot of it, or not a lot of it, but I think this mountaintop experience is it pointing forward to that God was using Moses and the prophets to point towards Jesus and that the authority for life wasn't the words of Moses or the words of the prophet, that the authority for life was the one that Moses and the prophets were pointing forward to, which was Jesus himself. So then I got to ask the follow-up question to that is like with the Moses and Elijah, there's a reference in Revelation about two prophets. And I know a lot of, uh, you know, conversation is maybe those are Moses and Elijah. Is there any working theories why that would be the case or not the case? That's not the case. That's not the case? Okay. <laughs> That's, I mean, I'm not saying I'm ruling it out, but there's there's a very clear reference to who those two witnesses are, and it, ha- it has to do with, with the church and, and the body of, of Christ. Because it, it talks, is that Revelation 11? There, there's two witnesses, and they're going to prophesy for a while. Well, if you're talking about prophets prophesying, like being a prophet, like Moses or Moses d- didn't do as much prophesying as Elijah. So that's a, a one one knock against it. But also, like these people are these people are killed by the beast and neither of not Moses nor Elijah are killed by the beast. So, I think those are two two really good reasons why these aren't th- those people. I, I think that's that's more of a reference to the church. Another really cool thing about Elijah in the there, there was this view in Jewish life that when Elijah would come back to mark the end of the age. And so, you know, you see John the Baptist coming back in the spirit of Elijah, which is really cool. Um, but also, you know, this picture of like Elijah is going to come back at the end of the age. Well, with Elijah and Moses together with Jesus on the mountain, it, it really is that it's symbolizing this is the end of the of the old covenant. 
the old covenant, which was the agreement between God and the Israelites, that if they followed his law and a sacrificial system, that God would bless them and protect them. Well, now it's the mark of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, that Jesus is going to go to the cross and die for our sins, and our response is faith. Um, and so this really was the, the coming of the kingdom of heaven revealed to these three so they could have a sneak peek and the, the re- revelation that all of the Old Testament was talking about Jesus and that the new covenant is here. And so it's no longer based on sacrifice. It, it's, it's based on mercy, which actually it's funny. Jesus says that several times to the Pharisees. You guys, you know, ponder this meaning, right? That, that what God in heaven wants is not sacrifice, but mercy. And uh, it's the mark of the, the new covenant that has come, which is, which is pretty cool to think about. All of that happens in this, I don't know how, five minute period, you know, 10 minute period on the mount. No, it's interesting to think. And then in the uh, Peter and all this wants to start building a shelter during this transfiguration moment when they're, when they're there. He's like, let us build three shelters. Why is he trying to build shelters? I think that has to do with the reference to the Festival of Tabernacles or booths, which also Drew mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, where, you know, they're, they're here. They want to dwell together for a while. Um, and let's do this thing. That also might be another reason why Luke says that there are it, it's after eight days to solidify that connection for the reader because the Festival of Tabernacles was eight days long. And so there's a, after eight days, and then there's these people who show up. They're on a mountain, presumably in the wilderness, not really close to anybody. And then Peter wants to set up, set up some shelters to dwell in for another eight days. Who knows? <laughs> And then the next part of the story gets a little bit creepier. As in a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And what's the significance of the, you know God speaking in the cloud, the voice? I, you know, if you think back to Jesus' baptism, you know, when Jesus comes out of the water, it says that you know, the, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him like a dove and that then they hear God's voice say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, and John the Baptist even references that. He says, well, how, how do you know that Jesus is the one? Well, I heard God's voice coming out of heaven, confirming that this was the Son of God. And so I think this is one of the ways that God uses to provide, um, uh, you know, basically confirmation. And so in, the, in Jewish culture, if you wanted to, to be an eyewitness, if you needed to call an eyewitness to say a trial or to give account— you'd have two to three witnesses. And so here is Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, three witnesses. And then God speaks from heaven. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And so God at that point is giving Jesus all authority, right? And all dominion and rule um, over this new kingdom of heaven. So there, there's a symbolic nature to this that, that now these three eyewitnesses can confirm that the heavenly father has bestowed the kingdom of heaven upon Jesus. So I think that's some of what's going on there. Okay. And then in the big picture of the story, why does this happen? What's the big deal? Like, why did God, Jesus, show this to the disciples? What was the, why did he reveal his glory? You know, one of Jesus' main messages was that the kingdom of heaven is near and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, he starts preaching, right? He immediately starts baptizing. You know, the disciples are baptizing people. He's healing people. And he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Um, well, this is the revelation that the kingdom of, of heaven was, was officially here. 
right? Like it was, it was here. And Jesus is, is soon going to go to the cross and rise from the grave. Um, so this was like the symbolic turning point in, in a way of Jesus revealing to these three, it's here. And it's getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to go down. And I'm going to give you guys a sneak peek. Don't, and, and he says, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until later. Because I'm going to go to the cross and rise from the grave. And it's not going to make any sense until I rise from the grave. And then you're going to see, wow, we, were, we actually had a sneak peek that this was all coming. One of my favorite things to do is always to kind of fly up a little higher and look at things from a, a, a global perspective when you're talking about the, the literary piece of work that we're looking at. And um, the stories that come right before this is a story where Peter uh, claims that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter says, you are God's Messiah. And then right after that, Jesus tells his disciples that, uh, yeah, that's right, and I'm going to die. Like, that's, that's what is going to happen. And then he's transfigured in front of Peter's eyes as well as some others. And it's as though Jesus is saying, this is exactly who I am. You know that I am the Messiah, but the Messiah has to die, and this is who I am. And once I die... This is what I am going to be. Like, this is what you also are going to be. It's interesting to me that Moses and Elijah are here. If they are actually there, that means that they're there in some kind of resurrected bodily form, which is interesting because they are also shining, right? Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Um, And they spoke about his departure, which was going to be to be brought about at fulfillment at Jerusalem. It's like th- th- he just predicted he was going to die, and now Moses and Elijah are there talking with him about that very thing. Like, Jesus is the Messiah. This is who he is. And so there's this, as Drew said, there's this unveiling, there's this revealing, this, this sneak peek of what the future kingdom is like. And, and it, it is these people together, resurrected, shining with God's glory, and that's what the kingdom of God will be like. No, it's interesting to think about with all that, where it's like, here's, like, especially when you think about Peter, and as we see, know the, the full story of the Gospels, where it's like, he sees this moment, then he sees Jesus crucified, you know, I don't know what the time frame from here to the crucifixion is, but he sees all these amazing things, especially this moment, and then denies Jesus three times. I don't know about you guys, but I, how many times in our life are going, man, if I just had a sign, if I knew, I would never doubt if I knew, you know, if there was a sign. You know, if we only had the Holy Spirit. If if the clouds spoke to me, (laughs) I would, I'd feel confident. It's like he here's one here's someone who walked with him, talked with him, saw this, and was still like, I don't. In a moment of uh, still doubted, still or in the moment denied, like, hey, no, I don't know this guy. Yeah, right. So there's a a humbling moment when you think about you know the authors of this and the people that lived through it. That you know, there's this authenticity of going. Yeah, I know. It's like when. When it became tough, they kind of, you know, hit as well. That's good, man. Yeah, so, so good. So, yeah. As we wrap this up, Pastor Darren ends. Any parting thoughts? Not this time. Pastor Drew Tarwater. Drew normally does. You can ask him. <laughs> oh, I've always, got a, I've always got a parting thought. You know, sometimes skeptics of the Bible will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I think he has, he does several times, you know, we, right before this, when Peter says, you're the Christ, he says, you're right, I am, and I'm going to build my church and uh, on that rock and give you guys the keys of the kingdom. But, but I think this is another example where Jesus reveals his glory on this mountain. He's revealing that he is God. You know, he's revealing an action that he is divine 
Um, so I think and just another case of, of Jesus over and over again showing different ways that he is the divine son of God. And, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas, you know, that Jesus came and set his glory to the side and picked up the humanly form um, in all humility to, to do this amazing thing for us and pay the price for our sin and rise from the grave. Um, so, the, the, you know, this, the story of the transfiguration, it's not just a cool story. It's really meaningful. Um, of Jesus signaling who he is and why he came. And I think it's good for us to dwell on that truth that like the weighty, heavy, glorious son of God came and gave his life for us. It's really beautiful. No, absolutely. Is that guys, we thank you for your time on this. If we don't talk to you between now and Christmas, have a great Christmas. If you're at forefront church and you have questions, drop us a note in the box in the back with the comment cards, or if you just want to email us life at forefrontchurch.tv, we'd love to hear from you love to hear from you any questions or thoughts you may have on this once again pastor drew tarwater thank you for your time thanks guys pastor darren ends thank you so much my pleasure thanks for listening and i'm rob blasi you have been listening to more to the story a weekly podcast featuring pastor drew tarwater and pastor darren ends of forefront church in denver colorado each week more to the story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.